Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Professor Sir Michael Brady, whose contributions to science apply to medicine, a legion. Sir Michael started his advanced education with a bachelor's degree in mathematics from Manchester University, where he also obtained his master's. He then went to the Australian National University in Canberra for his PhD in the same discipline. He served as a lecturer, then senior lecturer in computer science at Essex University, and then as a senior research scientist in the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and became a professor of information engineering at Oxford, where he served for 25 years and where we first met. He then became professor of oncological imaging at Oxford, the city of dreaming spires, and also as distinguished adjunct professor at the Mohammed bin Zayed University of Artificial Intelligence in Abu Dhabi. Professor Brady is, how shall I say, a grotesque overachiever. He has honors, more honorary doctorates and significant awards than one can shake a stick at. He has so many publications, presentations, editorial and societal experiences that I'm astonished how he has any time on his hands. He's also been involved in bringing many new technologies from the mind to marketplace, serving on boards and as chairman for several startups. Having been awarded colors, specifically maroon at Manchester for rugby, an honor if you will, he went to Australia, as I mentioned, to do his PhD, and he didn't think that the standard of rugby was very high. So he played football for the Australian National University. And when I say football, I mean the kind where you use your feet and a ball for our American friends. And he ended up playing in a professional league as amateurs, mind you. But the team he watched in that rugby league became the Brumbies, a top team who won countless trophies and typically supply the Australian national team, who are known as the Wallabies, with six players. So much for Michael's sporting judgment. Thankfully, his academic judgment is better. When not postulating about the nature of the world, developing or advancing new technologies, the good professor is a long-suffering Everton Football Club supporter. Professor Sir Michael Brady, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. It's uh, great to be with you guys. And I promise not to ask any questions about Everton until we're done dusted here. <laughs> so, Mike, I love learning what leads people into their chosen field. Tell us about your journey. Why mathematics? What took you to Australia? And how you transitioned into helping develop medical technologies? So I was the first member of my family to go to university. I came from quite a poor family in Liverpool. And I chose maths because it was what I was best at at school. I figured on doing applied maths, but when I got to university in Manchester, I fell under the spell of pure mathematics, primarily algebra, and particularly under Professor Bernard Neumann. It was about the same time that I fell under the spell of Bach's music, so you can make of that what you will. Toward the end of my degree, Bernard and half the department moved to the Australian National University where he ran the research school and his wife the undergraduate school. So I applied for a scholarship to go and do a DPhil, was awarded it, got married and did my PhD at ANU. After the PhD, I got intrigued by computing science and got, as you pointed out, an academic post back in the UK in Essex. 
But I quickly found out that most of computing science was dull. I still think that. Happily, I chanced upon AI and image analysis, which has got lots of maths. Uh, so six years later, after several visits, I ended up as co-director of the AI lab at MIT, where we started the robotics laboratory. It was really like being a kid in a candy store. I was really happy there. And then in 1985, Oxford University Engineering Science Department came calling. And so I went back to the UK, to Oxford, where I set up the robotics lab. It was all going very smoothly, actually, until my mother-in-law, who's a, a wonderful woman, forget the jokes, she was a wonderful woman, an English GP. She died of breast cancer. I could not understand why clinicians just did not have the technology to support and inform them in cancer that manufacturing and defense just took for granted. And so I pretty much instantly quit working in mobile robots and started working in breast cancer and then cancer more generally and eventually became co-director of the Oxford Cancer Imaging Center. When I retired, as you were required to do so when you became a 65-year-old geriatric, I was offered an emeritus position in oncology in Oxford. So my career has not really been a random walk. It's been driven by applications and research interests, and I've just followed the applications. You know, it's, it's interesting, though, that it was inspired by a personal story and, ob and an observation. And it's actually probably the best way to inspire innovation. It's driven by need. It's driven by unmet clinical need. I completely agree with that, Jonathan. I really do. Yeah. So a very good friend of mine, Paul Ferris, who explained to me that, you know, when I come to him with something I'd invented and he basically said, well, how do you know there's a need for this? Maybe you're just not very good. And that's why you need it. And if there is a need for it, maybe your solution isn't the right solution. And it was it was an aha moment about innovation. And you've been a very innovative chap, Mike. So we're going to come on to some of that. But we do have an international audience and they're bemused by certain things that we do in the UK. And I just want to address that. So as I teasingly said in my introduction, you've rightly seen your contributions recognized with multiple accolades. You delivered the the lecture named for Alan Turing, who, of course, is famous for his contributions. You were made a foreign associate member of the French Academy of Sciences. And in 2004, you were knighted for your services to engineering. Tell us just briefly about your visit to the palace and tell us about your proudest accomplishments. And I know it's not going to be getting the awards, but it's doing the work that led to that. Well, getting the knighthood was pretty scary, actually, because... The Queen, delightful, absolutely delightful woman. The Queen is pretty short. And so she stood on a little um, uh, like shelf and holding this sword that she taps you on both shoulders with. The only problem was as you walk along towards her and to kneel down, the sword was waving. And I thought, my God, I'm going to come out of this looking like Vincent van Gogh. Um, <laughs> but... but um, in fact, actually, uh, I survived. We had three or four questions that she asked me, and then we moved on, and it was, it was, it was a pretty wonderful experience. But you ask about prizes and honours, and they're nice, of course, but let's be quite clear, that's not what drives me. I can answer your question about proudest accomplishments by relating a little story that I'm very fond of, which is that in the early 19th century, one of the greatest chemists that the world's ever known, Sir Humphrey Davy, who was the director of the Royal Institution, at the end of his career, he was asked, what was your greatest scientific discovery? And he said, without any hesitation, Michael Faraday. 
In a simple way, my proudest professional accomplishment is that I've graduated about 120 PhD students. That's what shapes the future. My second proudest is to have produced science that we've taken out the lab, routine use clinically in thousands of hospitals around the world. That's a great statement. I've, I was told by one of my bosses when I was training that his goal was to see young men and women who he trained do a procedure better than he could. And I thought that humility and that desire to promulgate excellence is a fabulous mantra. So that's lovely. So in 2014, you delivered an invited lecture to New Zealand's Morgo Entrepreneurship Conference, which is organized by a lady who is a force of nature. And I was lucky enough to also speak there a few years before. Talk to us about the need for international collaborations. And some things have made that easier, video telecoms, and some things have made it harder, like the pandemic, political tensions, and so on. Please give us your thoughts and and frame it, if you will, around things that you've done that were international collaborations. Well, you know, the most important clinical problems, indeed, I think the most important scientific problems, are fiendishly difficult. We make progress, we make things better, but there's always been, and there probably always will be, a vast ocean of ignorance. You think about cancer, about the deeper genome, about brain disease, you can see just how huge these problems are. Tackling deep problems is nowadays rarely done by a lone scientist working in glorious isolation, an Einstein, a Newton, or Henri Descartes. Rather, they're solved by teams of scientists working collaboratively across many nations and across the academic commercial divide. I've benefited immensely by working on UK multi-center projects in cancer, on EU projects in breast cancer, and on projects that involve the EU and the USA. Currently, for example, I'm working on a project in hepatocellular carcinoma with colleagues in Singapore, where we've got a really wonderful surgeon, Pierce Chow. I think the fundamental thing, uh, Jonathan, that I start from is that deep problems do not respect nationality, race or religion. The most important ingredients are integrity and trust. You can't share your ideas with somebody if you suspect that they'll rip you off and present your ideas as theirs. And falsification of data inevitably leads you to castles built on sound, as we've seen recently with the amyloid beta star 56 revelations. It's my nature to collaborate and to share the spoils. You know, I've never, ever had a culture of me. Shafting colleagues will, in the end, do you down, and so it should. Yeah, I think it's happened to me once. It was many, many, many years ago. And it still rankles. It still sits like an abscess that you can't reach and lance. But I, I would agree with that. And during the pandemic, you know, whilst I'm no longer madly active clinically, I have still done some overseas work going and teaching in lesser developed countries, which I always considered an immense privilege. And I know all of us really miss that. But, you know, of course, we then discovered that we've got these marvelous means of communicating uh, with video conferencing, which is quite astonishing. So um, you've mentioned some of your collaborations. Let's dig into some. So you've done a lot of work on image analysis to help clinicians make therapeutic decisions, presumably driven by your experience with your mother-in-law and you know to make decisions about therapies and to reach prognosis. Can you walk us through where we are with each of these modalities, good old fashioned x-rays, ultrasound, CAT scans, MRI, etc. 
You can do this however you wish, different anatomies, different diseases, different uh, imaging modalities, up to you. But give us some examples. Well, in thinking about this, I think the real important issue is that imaging has developed massively over the past few years. And all of the modalities that you mentioned have benefited from at least four considerations. The first is innovations in electronics and computing, which enable us to make faster imaging with vastly improved spatial resolution and signal-to-noise. Second, better mathematical methods of signal and image analysis, which enable us to have accurate delineation of organs or the detection of certain kinds of pathology and tracking the development of pathology over time. The third is AI methods. We'll maybe come on and talk a little bit more about AI which spans machine learning and causal reasoning, and which increasingly work and work well in the real world. And fourthly, communications such as the internet and the cloud that facilitate the construction of large databases, remote reading, and provision of services, so software as a service. These innovations have applied to every single imaging modality from mammography, for example, tomosynthesis, to ultrasound, for example, power Doppler, through CT, for example, in high resolution, spiral CT, in PET, where you've got time of flight PET, and in MRI, where we now deal routinely with quantitative MRI and with real-time cardiac MRI. So with each of these modalities as they've come along, what sort of changes do you see in therapeutic accuracy, prognostic accuracy, and something that's really important, doesn't get discussed, cost? Because whilst a system might cost more money, if it positively impacts the outcome, it reduces the cost to treat. So how important are healthcare economics as you develop a new technology? Well, they're, they're vastly important. Before that, I think that one of the issues about images is that they provide phenotypical information, which is complementary to what you'll get from circulating biomarkers and genomics markers. And I think that the biggest innovation that we've seen is in quantitative imaging. So, for example, instead of looking at T1-weighted MRI, we now have a measurement of T1 relaxivity, which is very accurate, very reproducible, relies therefore considerably less on radiologist judgment and therefore reduces interradiologist variability, and which has the dimensions of time. It turns out that in many cases, the T1 relaxivity is a direct correlate of fibroinflammation. So you're going from an imaging modality to something which has got physical dimensions, but which has got an underlying physiological meaning. So continuing in that vein, can you tell us some stories about the companies that you've helped working on image analysis or image fusion and how it's been deployed out in the real world? Well, uh one story that I'm sure you'll resonate with is just on 20 years ago, Mirada Solutions, we went for the first time to RSNA in Chicago, which at the time had about 65, 70,000 attendees. And we took two products, one image registration, in fact, particularly CT PET and MR PET, and the other was quantitative mammography. And it was just after the first PET CT machines had just been delivered but mammography was the more advanced scientifically. And so on the first morning of the show, we had five workstations running on our booth and they were running mammography. And we had two running image registration. 
But it was evident after two hours that the visitors to the brood, to a first approximation, couldn't give a damn about the mammography, but they were really, really interested in the image registration. And so that afternoon, we switched to having six workstations running registration and one running MAMO. This generated huge interest and eventually made the company, which was acquired by CTI Molecular Imaging two years later. The model of the story is, listen to the customer. And, you know, I learned that so, so rapidly within two hours. There are many more stories, but I think that's a pretty good story of the development of a company. So, Mike, I was helping a, a gentleman who had developed some a company out of his PhD work at a North American university and asked me to help him and I'm serving on the board. And he said to me, there's this program run by the National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundation that they call ICORP, little I-C-O-R-P-S, and they teach lean methodology. And I poo-pooed it and I said, you're asking me to go to Bethesda, Maryland, sit in a nondescript hotel for five days, listen to lectures, then spend six weeks going around talking to people, then come back and spend another five days in a nondescript hotel, not on your Nelly. And he asked and he pushed and, and I said, that's why you brought me on, my dear chap, because I'm experienced, I know this. My God, Mike, I tell you, within 20 minutes of being there, I thought, I'm, I'm an idiot, I don't know anything. I learned so much and the key thing was really listen to your customers and really listen to what the market wants. You can have the best prop engine in the world, but if people want a jet engine, tough luck. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. It seems everything today has AI, artificial intelligence working in the background. And we have doomsayers telling us that AI is going to be the end of humanity. Where is AI really proving to be a value? What's the promise What's the risk? Well, I think there's good news and bad. The good news is that AI technologies, whether it's expert systems, causal networks, deep machine learning through machine translation, speech to text, image analysis. Over the past 20, 30 years, they've developed massively, all of them. And they continue to do so. And in fact, there are vastly greater developments to come. So I think for AI, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's a really, really rosy picture. So what's the bad news? Well, the bad news is that no technology, and it doesn't matter whether it's AI or it's graphene or it's nuclear fusion, can measure up to the un unbelievable amounts of hype that surround it. And there has been a huge amount of unjustified, incorrect hype around AI. So much so that there's a temptation to conclude from the realization that since AI cannot do everything that's been claimed of it, therefore it can do nothing. And that's just completely ridiculous. AI medicine, to date, has been of most value when it provides decision support, not when it tries to automate the exquisite skills and deployments of knowledge about any form of pathology. It's when it acts like a kind of an assistant who sits behind a clinician and points things out and gives a certain amount of information. I've been doing that in breast cancer. I've done that a lot recently in liver disease. We can delineate organs accurately. We can detect soft tissue masses and microcalcifications in mammograms, et cetera, and et cetera. But let's be quite clear. Most machine learning algorithms cannot articulate why they've identified a particular region or why it is deemed to be suspicious. And that is often 
and quite rightly unacceptable to clinicians. That's interesting. You know, I can certainly see for image analysis or decision making and certainly in robotics, I think it's going to be absolutely key. And also in supply chain things within the operating theatre and within the greater hospital environment. Well, I, I mentioned robotics. Let's You and I, have, you know, we've shared a fascination in this area. Talk to us about some of the current application of robots that make sense clinically and economically. And what does the future hold? Robots that can see, robots that are, you know, microscopic, wax lyrical, Sir Michael. <laughs> well, I think over the past 40 years, as you know, we've learned a huge amount about robot kinematics, dynamics, and sensor-guided control. We've learned in particular about what is called programmable compliant control, which means that you can effectively feel surfaces and yet move. If you imagine moving on the tabletop, you can move on it without actually trying to go through the table. And that's the basis, for example, of surgical robots, such as the Da Vinci systems and the various others, of course. There are now several superb systems that combine the expertise, knowledge and planning clinician in the loop with the precision and avoidance of tremor of the end effector, particularly for minimally invasive procedures. These have found increasing application in the brain, the eye, and the urinary tract. We've seen surgery at a distance by integrating uh, enhanced virtual reality, as well as novel multispectral illumination that can, for example, precisely delineate a tumor while a surgeon is operating. But you really asked about future possibilities. And as uh, Yogi Berra once said, you know, prediction's never easy, especially when it concerns the future. Um, one of the things that we can say for certain is that the miniaturization of devices will continue, as will embedded intelligence in the form of computer processing at the device tip and smarter and smarter local control. So systems will increasingly make quasi-autonomous decisions, for example, whether to resect based on what they sense locally at the business end. They'll become increasingly autonomous, enabling perhaps one day swallowable robots that can navigate in the gut, for example, to investigate and perhaps address Barrett's and in the colon. There'll be systems that can navigate both on the basis of local sensing internally and external information provided by MRI and perhaps using external magnetic fields to provide steering. So I think the miniaturization and the increasing local control, but always in my mind, or predominantly in my mind, with the clinician in the loop to benefit from the extraordinary expertise and knowledge and planning, I think that will be the next wave of robots. So thanks for that, Mike. Years ago, I met Yogi Berra at a charity dinner and what a total delight of a man, self-deprecating, a really quick wit. And I love his quotes, you know, like when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> and, uh, um, he... Well, we shouldn't, we, shouldn't get, we shouldn't get distracted, but I always love the one about when he was on his deathbed and his wife said to him, well, you know, Yogi, we've lived in several places. Where do you want to be buried? And he said, surprise me. <laughs> Oh boy, that's wonderful. He was a great man. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think the demands of healthcare, we have to focus resources in a more responsible manner. We really do. Because otherwise we have this bimodal healthcare system where the uber wealthy get one thing and then 
the poor don't get anything and that's not acceptable. So everything we've discussed can improve medical outcomes potentially. Ultrasound intraoperatively, robotic enhancement, AI decision making, making. But if we combine imaging modalities, artificial intelligence and robotics, are we going to see fully automated surgical procedures gain wide acceptance? There have already been some. And if so, when? Well, I think like you, like you say, you know, the integration of imaging modalities, AI, robotics does indeed imply that fully autonomous surgery will become feasible. Indeed, it's now feasible. However, as you yourself know, no surgical procedure is always entirely routine. The variability of patients and pathologies mean that you always have to expect the unexpected and modify your plan accordingly. And that is the Achilles heel. To be acceptable to the medical profession, to insurers and to patients, any autonomous system will need to be able not just to effect a plan, but to understand every single step of that plan, to understand what assumptions it rests upon and what are the consequences of modifying that step. That's the job of AI, but not simplistic machine learning. Rather, the ability to explicitly ask and answer the question why as the great Professor Judah Pearl at UCLA has been posing it. My guess is that it's inevitable that autonomous surgery will gradually come into practice. And my guess is that initially that will be in tense situations, such as on battlefields or disaster areas, where you really don't want to have, or you simply cannot set up operating suites. My guess is that early systems will still involve clinicians in the loop, perhaps relayed by drones, but I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it will be in tense situations where we will see the first really autonomous surgical systems. Yeah, I think it's going to come down to money and efficiency, frankly. You know, yes, there is a degree of variation, but I think if you have a sufficiently large data set, you know, I've done, for instance, a huge number of gallbladders. And yes, the anatomy can vary, but it varies. You know, it's not infinitely variable. So fascinating. Watch this space. Yeah. So given that you've been involved in science and commerce, and as have I, and I think about the journey from bench to bedside and contemplating the challenges, raising money, running clinical trials, what are your observations on these issues, given your experience across the lifespan from pontification to product? What are the challenges? What's become easier? What's become harder? You know, Jonathan, uh, you and I have both done a lot of this, and I think this could be a whole business school session just by itself. But for me, the three most important observations have been, first of all, the realization that the overwhelming majority, perhaps more than eight, 98%, of research published in the field of medical imaging, which is my field, despite the introduction of papers waxing lyrical about the potential application to clinical medicine, never go beyond being yet another research paper. They never actually take it into the clinic. The second thing was more about myself. The first time I saw a clinician make a patient management decision based on software that I had developed was a thrill that far exceeded anything that I had ever got from publishing papers. So I learned something important about me and about my need to take stuff from my lab into clinical use. And the third observation was that understanding that clinicians buy systems from companies and not universities, not because universities are poor at marketing, 
but because clinicians need regulatory approved products that rest upon you know, quality assurance like ISO 13485 and 27001. And only companies can provide that. So I became, and I continue to be, driven to take technology from the technology bench to the bedside. And to do, to do that, like you, I've had to learn how to build business plans, present to investors, gain quality and regulatory approval, manage people. And, of course, in learning how to do all of that, I've pretty regularly screwed up so that every single time I started a new company, it got better. So, uh, yeah, I, I tell people uh, I'm not going to make the same mistake. I, I'm just going to make new mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, if it was easy, everyone would do it. But it is a thrill. Um, Mike, in closing, I love asking my guests this question. If you had three wishes to improve global health care, what would they be? First, and this applies particularly to the UK uh, National Health Service, which is actually a national sickness service, rather than waiting until you're unwell before accessing the health system, I would love to see us change the culture so that people monitor and uh, maintain health and anticipate likely sickness. In Asia, such centres are called wellness clinics, and I would love to see that become much more established in the consciousness of the United States and Europe. Second, I think that we should recognize that something of the order of 50% of the population in the United States suffer from, and 86% of healthcare costs and a staggering $1.1 trillion result from chronic conditions. And that means that we need to shift the focus of medicine and medical research, particularly from one-time detection and diagnosis of pathology to continuing care, to monitor disease progression, response to therapy, and occasionally termination of therapy for palliation. And third, I think related to those two previous points, I'd like to see us reverse what has been the inexorable progression to ever greater, ever greater specialism and reinvent the general physician who treats the whole animal and not just a lung or a liver. The need for this has become crystal clear during the COVID pandemic, which like type two diabetes and the metabolic syndrome generally is a multi-organ condition that currently afflicts 7.5% of the US population, but whose effects in terms of organ damage vary massively from person to person and typically impair several organs. I think we really need to be reinventing and celebrating the general physician that looks after the whole animal. Good wishes, Mike. Um, here's wishing they come true. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. And I want to thank Professor Sir Michael Brady for taking the time to share his brilliant work and career with us. Mike, it's been a delight speaking to you. And I hope we can get together soon to discuss robots and all the other interests we share and maybe watch some footy soon when my Tottenham take on your Everton. Well, um, I knew you would finish off with a cruel statement. I will accept your invitation to a ritual slaughter. <laughs> there we go. So, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please like us on social media, tell your friends and colleagues, and tune in next week for another episode of the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. Until next time, thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. 
bye for now.